Loving Father, we pray that you would guide us into the truth and give us something to take away which is going to be helpful for us tonight. Teach us more things about you and more things about ourselves and how to uh, live for you and care for one another and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said uh, that the question of suffering is the most difficult objection for the Christian faith to answer. And many of you might know from experience why that is the case. You might wrestle with all kinds of questions about the Christian faith, you know, predestination or the Trinity or uh, the human divine nature of Jesus or any number of questions, the existence of God. But suffering is, I think, probably the most difficult question to answer because it is, of course, so personal. Uh, The intellectual arguments in some ways, in some situations, really don't matter when it comes to suffering because this is my life or the life of somebody I love and it's been derailed and where is the meaning in life if life is now full of pain? Uh, I want to protest, I want to cry out, I want to rage against whoever or whatever is running this universe. I want answers and I don't just want general theoretical ones, I want personal satisfaction and meaning for my suffering that I'm going through now. And of course it's not just uh, non-Christians who feel this way when they suffer, it's Christians too that have very difficult questions, very personal questions and a need for satisfaction when they suffer. And the pertinent question for us tonight I think is where that satisfaction is going to come from. Who must speak for God in order to meet a person in their suffering? Now the great tension of the book of Job, which you'll have sensed as we've gone through if you've been around for it, is the fact that an explanation for Job's experience is never given to anyone, including to Job. He suffers extravagantly and God never tells anyone in the book why. Now the reader knows why from chapters 1 and 2. God afflicts Job in order to prove his glory through Job's perseverance Uh, It's not because Job was wicked that he suffered. In fact, it's because he was blameless that God afflicted him to make a point. Now, but there's a mystery. No one's told this. Uh, Job's three friends say, God is a just God, so you must have done something to deserve this, Job. Uh, They try to resolve this tension by blaming Job. But Job says, no, no, I didn't turn against God, God turned against me I want, and I want satisfaction. I want God to admit that I don't deserve what I'm getting. Uh, so he's not settling for their resolution of the, of the tension. And so after 31 long chapters of Job and going around and around, this is where things still stand. The tension is unresolved. And so at the end of chapter 31, we're pretty ready for God to speak and sort of break the stalemate. Um, the, three men, uh, the three friends have nothing left to say. Uh, Job has laid out his case and he's called upon God to lay out God's case. But instead of God speaking at, in chapter 32, up pops this guy called Elihu who inserts himself into the conversation and he has a lot to say, uh, four speeches over five chapters. Now, There is no consensus on the function that Elihu performs in the book of Job or whether he's a goodie or a baddie. In fact, I don't think there's going to be a lot of Bible trivia in the the trivia night next week, but if you do get a question on Elihu and James says, no, he wasn't Job's friend, you could probably argue the opposite point and perhaps at least get half a point for that. I'm not sure. 
But during the week I've read some who think he's got nothing new to say, he's just a long-winded bore who repeats what everyone else has said already. But then I've read others who think he has a profound message that's actually the key to the book of Job. I read one opinion that Elihu is Jesus speaking into the situation. I read another opinion that says Elihu was drunk as he spoke with texts to back it up from Elihu's speech, like I'm full of wind or whatever he said. Um, now, within our staff team, there are differing opinions on Elihu. So, if you were at Winmalee or uh, um, 4.30 Church today, uh, you would have heard uh, at least a slightly different sermon from Nick to the one that you're going to, to hear tonight. I'm sure Nick's was very profitable as well. But it is an enigma what to make of this guy Elihu. Now, most people agree that in some way Elihu prepares us for God to speak. But, of course, there are wildly different opinions as to how it prepares us for that. Here's what I think about Elihu, for what it's worth. I think he does say some things that are new. He doesn't just repeat the arguments of the three friends. He agrees with their basic proposition, but he has new things to say that are true and quite profound. But I think the question is, is he any help even though he says some good things, did, he really, did we really need to hear them from him at this point? Does he give the satisfaction that is needed to resolve this tension and meet Job in his suffering? The thing is that he is presented as an arrogant little so-and-so um, uh, and a young man, so I guess maybe it's a gauge of your age how you re- regard Elihu as well, whether you like him or not. He's very long-winded He's very confident. Chapter 36, verse 4, he says, one who is perfect in knowledge is among you. Uh, So you love him, don't you? (laughs) Some would say, well, that's because he's a prophet, so fair enough, he should say that. God's given him words to say. He should be confident in those words. But we're not told that the word of the Lord came to Elihu. We're told, in fact, that he injected himself into the conversation because he's so angry that everybody else is so stupid. And so you read that and you think, I don't think I like this fellow very much. He's a bit like the three friends in uh, in that he came and he had some wisdom that he wanted to share and he feels that it's godly wisdom. But unlike the three friends, he doesn't start with sympathy for Job. It seems he starts with this uh, self-righteous anger. And so the start of chapter 32, it says, The three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they'd found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So he's angry about this stalemate. Uh, Job was going too far in judging God. The three friends had failed to defend God effectively with their simplistic explanation for his suffering. Elihu had waited for his elders to sort of talk themselves out, so that's a point in his favour, but in the end, he's still presented as fairly arrogant. And so, Elihu speaks some truth, but he is an angry young man who thinks he knows everything. And when he's finally finished speaking, I for one am left feeling, well, there were some good points in there, but I'm not sure that we really needed that. So why then is this section in the Bible, we might ask? Well, because perhaps this is the point. When we're suffering, from whom do we need to hear? We don't need arguments from clever people, perhaps. 
Maybe only a direct encounter with God will satisfy us when we suffer. So you can make up your own mind what you think of Elihu. We'll do a flyover of his speeches now. So Elihu's first speech is in two halves. The first half is addressed to the three friends and the second half to Job. And so speech one, part one, chapter uh, 32, uh, the text I think that sums it up is, I too will have my say. And there's an outline that you've been given so you can follow where we're up to uh, as usual. Elihu explains that he's been listening to the whole conversation and now that it's his turn, he's bursting to speak and he has a lot to say. Notice what is compelling him in verse 12 of chapter 32. Not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom. Let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me and I will not answer him with your arguments. I've got something better to say. Uh, So notice that Elihu feels that it's essential that somebody speaks for God and refutes Job. It's not good enough for the friends to think, well, we've got wisdom but we'll let God deal with Job. No, Elihu's saying, we have to keep arguing this out and I'm the man for the job. The friends have run out of words but I've got plenty so here we go. He has a lot of faith in human wisdom and human words. We have to fix this for God, is his attitude. But my question, I guess, is do we? Do we, need, do we have to fix this for God? Does God always need us to step in and defend him with our clever arguments? Is that what a suffering person really needs? Um, so that's part one of speech one. Part two, the summary is God does speak. Uh, Elihu begins verse three of chapter 33. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. And then he says, let's have this out, Job, man to man. Don't be scared, I'll be gentle with you, he says. You say you've done no wrong, Job. You didn't turn against God, he turned against you. That's what you're saying. And now he's not returning your calls. But chapter 33, verse 12, I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. And he goes on to say that God is speaking to people to turn them away from their sin. He's speaking in dreams and visions, says Elihu, and he's speaking in our pain. And so uh, you might have heard the famous quote by C.S. Lewis about God speaking in our pain. Um, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, wrote C.S. Lewis. Well, Elihu made that point first here in chapter 33 of Job. Uh, Verse 19, he says, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain. And then he says, a messenger from God might come and urge that person to repent and that person repents and they're ransomed and they'll be restored. And so suffering is not just straight punishment, it can be an act of mercy from God uh, if it has a teaching, disciplining effect that ultimately leads to a person's salvation. And so at the end of the chapter, verse 29, he says, God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit that the light of life may shine on them. So this is a new and a true idea in the book of Job, I think. Suffering may come from God's love and mercy rather than from his anger. 
It may be a wake-up call from God and a step in a person's salvation that he puts us through some pain in order to make us turn back to him. And that's a good point. It's a true point, I think. And Elihu knows that he's just made a good point. Um, At the end of the chapter, he says, any questions, Job? Nope. Okay, just keep on listening because I'll keep giving you my wisdom. So then we have speech two in chapter 34. Uh, The summary of is, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong. And chapter 34 is a chapter about God's justice. Elihu notes Job's claim that he's innocent and God's denying him justice and he's rightly disapproving of the times when Job goes a little bit too far. There's a few times in which Job has suggested maybe there's no prophet trying to please God because this is all you get anyway. And Job is flirting with evil when he says stuff like that. He's gone too far. Elihu pulls him up on that. And Elihu says, no, God is fundamentally just. He is God. He upholds this world, including the moral order of the universe. And without that rule, the place would fall apart, says Elihu. Uh, Chapter 34, verse 12. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. I mean, and he's right. Can you imagine a world in which... The person ruling it, you can't predict what they're going to do or how they're going to respond. You can't can't assume that they'll do what's right in the end. Uh, What an awful world to live in. But he goes on to say, no, God is just. You can see it in history. You can see the way he rules the nations and brings down unjust rulers. You can see God's justice there. And so he urges Job to repent of suggesting that maybe we can't trust God's justice. And at this point, Elihu sounds quite like the three friends. He stands with them uh, at the end of chapter 34, verse 34. He says, Men of understanding declare, wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge, his words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. So notice there that he assumes that Job deserves his suffering, like the three friends made that assumption. But even more, what Elihu is reacting to is Job's accusation of God. He's defending God's justice in chapter 34. Then we have his third speech in chapter 35, uh, the summary of which is... Look up at the heavens, Job. And this speech reminds us that we shouldn't expect to relate to God as if God is on our level. Sometimes we can get a bit too big for our boots, but we can never speak face to face with God. You can speak face to toenail with God, is what Elihu is saying here. And he accuses Job of treating God like his equal. You know, he's saying things like, what do I get by not sinning, God, says Job. But Elihu says, Job, look up at the heavens. Look at the clouds high above you. That's where God is. He's all the way up there. You can't do deals with him. Why should God even care about your righteousness or your sin or your little tantrum and listen to your complaints? Uh, a little bit like a, a parent with a, with a tantruming toddler. You know, the, the, um, if you've never experienced, maybe you've seen it in the supermarket or something, child's yelling and screaming and throwing stuff all over the place and making threats and the parent says... No, you can carry on all you like. You don't get extra attention for behaving like that. I'm going to ignore you. We don't give in to terrorists here, is a line that I've used in our house before. (laughs) 
Elihu says to, to Job, you're carrying on and you're making a big deal about your righteousness and how maybe you may, have, may as well have just sinned and it doesn't make any difference, but why should God care about your protest, Job? If God doesn't reward the wicked by giving them his attention when they chuck tantrums, why should he answer you? You are, you are an ant yelling at an elephant. Why should he care? And of course there's an element of truth to that as well, isn't there? Um, who are we to demand God's attention? especially those who've ignored God all their life and then something goes wrong and they start making demands of God, why should God give them his attention? However, I don't think Elihu takes account of the fact that God and Job were actually close. Um, Job wasn't someone who ignored God all his life. God considered Job his servant, we learn in chapters 1 and 2. You might even say that they had a friendship of sorts, God and Job. So perhaps Job had more of a right to cry out to God than Elihu gives credit here in this chapter. So that's chapter 35. Um, One more speech to go, don't worry. Uh, Chapter 36 and 37 are Elihu's fourth speech, the summary of which is God is mighty. And the main theme here is that God is bigger and wiser than Job knows. Ours, therefore, is not to accuse God or argue with him but just to worship him and trust him. So Elihu repeats the point that God upholds justice. He uses our sufferings as wake-up calls. He blesses those who listen to his wake-up calls. Those who don't listen perish. He says to Job, God is wooing you. Uh, God is calling you back. So make sure you turn from your wickedness. And then he reminds Job that God is exalted in power. God should be praised. And chapter 36, verse 26, he says, How great is God beyond our understanding, the number of his years past finding out. And then he goes on to start riffing on the fact that God is the God of storms and weather. Uh, God is the one who controls the uncontrollable and the super powerful. You know, the huge storms that crack around at night time and the rain that pours down. Well, it's God up there doing all of that. So he sends the showers, he spreads out the clouds, he thunders, he scatters his lightning, he tells the snow to fall and the rain to pour. And Elihu goes on for some time about this. And he says to Job, do you know how God does all this? Um, Can you join God in doing this, Job? And the point is, of course, God is way up there and he's in control of all these things that we do not understand. And so to question God's judgment is... um, a little bit like a plane at the airport being told to go down runway two and take off and the pilot says, ah, I like the look of runway one, I think we'll go down that one, which of course would be a very stupid thing to say because he's not the one in the control tower with a a view of everything, he's just a guy in a plane. Uh, It's obvious the person in the tower knows what's best. And uh, so Elihu says to Job, this is what it's like with you and God, you're not in a position to question God's judgments. And so at the end of chapter 37, verse 19, uh, he says, Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should, we be told, should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? No one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendour. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore people revere him 
for he does, not have, does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? In other words, he's saying to Job, if you consider who God is, how could you think of challenging him or make, trying to make him answer for himself? How could you think that you have a case against God? Our role, surely, is just to fear and trust and worship, not question or accuse. And again, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? Um, but you also have to wonder whether a person who has been led into a friendship with God has a little bit more right to speak than just to be told, don't argue. You know what I mean? I mean, is this supposed to satisfy Job in his suffering? Does this theological argument really meet Job in his suffering? Now, on the plus side, Elihu allows for a bigger God than the three friends allowed. The three friends, their God was too small. Um, With their God, he rewards the righteous, he punishes the wicked, that's it, that's God. Elihu has a bigger God than that. He leaves room for mystery in suffering. He allows room for God's saving purposes in our pain. Uh, If God can send a terrifying storm that sends everybody running for cover, but at the same time that same storm waters the earth so that food comes up and we can eat it, so it's sort of a curse and a blessing at the same time, then he can also use our sufferings to bring ultimate good. They're not bad arguments. They're true, in fact. But I think the question is, are they really what Job needed? Uh, I don't think so. And I don't think they help in resolving the tension that has been driving this book. God didn't send Elihu. Elihu inserted himself. And he may well have given the best answers a human could have given at the time, but they are still ultimately dissatisfying in this situation. And so I think that that's why at the end of the book, Elihu and his contribution to the book are completely ignored. Job ignores Elihu and God ignores Elihu. He wasn't necessarily wrong and there are things that we can learn from what he says. In fact, some of what he says is quite magnificent. But he wasn't what was needed in this circumstance. And I think there is a lesson for that, uh, in that for us. What was it that got Job through, or got through to Job in the end What was it that met his suffering at the end of the book? Well, it wasn't clever explanations and defences of God by other people. It was God himself stepping in to speak to Job. And at the end of the book, uh, Job says to God, um, chapter 42, verse 5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I repent in dust and ashes. So it was... The eyes seeing God that made the difference in the end, not just the ears hearing about him. And so who must speak for God to a suffering person? God must speak for God to a suffering person, not clever Noels who try to argue with the poor person into submission. Uh, where does a suffering believer find satisfaction? Not just in hearing about God, but in seeing God. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about seeing God? Um, This is not to say we don't need words for somebody who's going through a hard time. When Job says, now my eyes have seen you, uh, he he doesn't mean it literally. He didn't literally see God with his eyes. It was still God's words that he was responding to there because God spoke to him. But the issue is who the words are coming from. They have to come from God if they are really going to satisfy us. It has to be an encounter with God. 
And after all, uh, that is how in the New Testament a person is saved. A Christian person is someone who will testify, I, God has spoken to me and I've responded. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul says to them, you received the gospel as it actually is, not just human words but the word of God. Uh, they heard God speaking to them through the gospel because the Holy Spirit came to them as well. And that same process of a person being called by God is, is described elsewhere in the New Testament, like in 2 Corinthians 3, as seeing the light. We see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ when we hear God's words from God. So we need to hear God speak to us directly in order to see God, metaphorically. And that's never clearer than when we are in the very personal turmoil of suffering. What do we need? We need God to draw near to us and address us. We don't need know-alls telling us all the answers. We need a personal uh, word from God. Now, when God met Job, he met him in a storm uh, at the end and we'll see that uh, next week. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit brings the presence of God to us personally and immediately. And so the lesson from Elihu is that when somebody you know is suffering and crying out and asking hard questions about God, clever answers may not be what they need. Now, that's not to say that you should say nothing. Uh, It's not to say you shouldn't bother trying to answer their questions. But it is to say, make sure your answers come from the Bible and offer those answers humbly and as you offer those answers, you should be praying that as the person hears God's word, his Holy Spirit will be at work in them and they will hear it as the word of God and that they will see God and encounter God personally uh, through what they hear. And that's also what we should pray for ourselves if we're suffering. Ranting and making demands of God is not great form, but the wise thing to do is to to ask God, draw near to me, God, Um, speak to me, show yourself to me, Uh, That's a wise prayer to pray in our suffering. And as you do pray that, make sure you're reading God's word and listening as best you can because it is God that we need. Well, uh, in 2015, our uh, family had a special treat holiday. We went to the Northern Territory and we started with Uluru. And I admit that I was a bit sceptical about Uluru. I wasn't really sure whether to bother. Um, After all, you make your way into into the middle of nowhere Uh, in order to look at a big rock. And so, like you, I'd seen all the photos, I'd seen it on TV, I've heard people talking about it, but my question was, what is the big deal? It was something to do, so we went. Uh, And we went, and I've got to say, I thought it was amazing. Uh, It really is incredible. And, you know, you're driving there and everyone's saying, where is it, where is it? And you're scanning it, and there's the sort of the false one you see on the way through, and you think, oh, is that it? Oh, no, it's not it. and then you see it and it's so exciting and so we park the car and we look at it and, um, and we walk up different hills and look at it and got up early in the morning and we looked at it and we walked around it, you know, and you, you're looking at it the whole time. Uh, all sorts of different angles and you're taking photos. Couldn't get enough of it. And I couldn't see the big deal until I saw it for myself. And now I'd say to you, yes, it's worth going. Go and see it. It's a rock, but you'll know what I'm talking about when you get there. Uh, 
And some people are the same with God, you know. All they ever hear is people talking about God and they think, what's the big deal? They've never heard God speak to them. They've never seen him. And if they did, they would understand and they would be satisfied. And we need that work of the Holy Spirit, especially when we suffer. Uh, And so we should pray for that work of the Holy Spirit and we should rely on him when we're called to speak for God to other people who are in hard times. Rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal God, to speak for God to them. Uh, I think that is the point of Elihu. We need God to speak for God. Uh, So let's pray and ask God to do that for us now. Loving Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives all the time, but maybe especially when we suffer. uh, What we really need is for you to draw near to us. And so help us to draw near to you and to listen and to pray and to rely on you. We thank you, Lord, that you promise to be near to your people. And so we pray that you'd help us to be open to you. We know that in the end, you are what we need and you are enough. And so we pray for that work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.